Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. Zach Geist, Student Loan Tutor. I'm here with uh, Sandy Botkin, uh, who's uh, an ex, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a former uh, IRS uh, tax attorney and uh, author of this book right here. This is the newest version that takes the uh, tax code uh, into account from the Trump administration. And uh, we're just going to talk about uh, how our clients, so Sandy, I'd I'd been messaging with you for probably the past two years or so uh, about tax questions and that type of information. And uh, we have over a thousand plus active clients that we manage uh, their student loans. Uh, most of them are self-employed physicians. Some of them are employed physicians. Most of them work in, I'd say some are allopathic and some are not allopathic uh, physicians. Uh, they do have in common a lot of student loan debt. And uh, they also have in common uh, questions about their taxes, which get brought up on our calls. Uh, because now student loan debt and student loan repayment and student loan forgiveness all take in consideration both individual taxes, uh, individual income, how income flows to them as the borrower of the debt, uh, and how much income their spouse earns, uh, and also takes into consideration their spouse's student loan debt. So I'm just kind of covering all that just so you know, Sandy, because we're all popping on here. And uh, the goal, I think, with this call is to be able to provide them with more ways to save not only money on their student loans, uh, but from a strategic element to save more money on their taxes and maybe even reduce their student loan burden even further by changing how they earn income. So on that, uh, Sandy, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, I was a very practical kid when I was younger. I figured there are two practical majors. I could have been an accountant or a mortician, and I didn't have the charisma for a mortician, so that left accounting. And I was, <laughs> and I was actually pretty good at it. I, I graduated number two from the City University of New York, and I worked my way through school. I also worked my way through law school, going to the University of Miami and working for the national accounting firm of Deloitte Touche. When I was at some point when I was in private practice for Deloitte, I realized that people were overpaying their taxes. And the thing really came home to me uh, with my parents. My parents were antique dealers and they used, you know, they were pretty successful and they used a, a notable CPA in Long Island. So they had me review their tax return just for grins. Despite being prepared by uh, a, ma a major CPA, I filed amended tax returns to get back $12,000. It was the first vacation my parents ever took outside the country that I'm aware of. And about three and a half years later, my mother uh, coincidentally died of lung cancer. Hmm. So I decided to quit the IRS, start up uh, a number of companies, one of which is the Tax Reduction Institute to do seminars. And then we uh, formed TaxBot uh, to make it life a lot easier to, to for not only provide information, but provide a bulletproof record keeping system for people so that they can understand what's available to them, the types of deductions, and to have powerful enough records so they never have to worry about an IRS audit again, either on their vehicles or their expenses, as well as having really strong receipt tracking management. 
And that's kind of, you know, what happened. And I've and throughout the years, I've done a lot of things. I was talking to one of the speakers with Tony Robbins that we talked about. I've written a number of books. I've written a number of articles. And I really get around. In fact, I've been in every state of the country except for North Dakota and Hawaii. And I was just informed that next winter, I will be in one of those two. I hear uh, in your book, uh, Lowering lower your taxes big time about, you reference Hawaii, I think maybe you were uh, imagining being there, about going to uh, seminars that are affiliated with work and being able to write them off and how much of the day has to be spent at the seminar, what, what, what counts as a write-off. So hopefully maybe uh, that will also, I'm sure you'll figure out a way to uh, make that a business expense. I always do it. I try to write off everything. I'm like a walking deduction. <laughs> That's great. I wish you could follow me around. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, if, if, if you have a business trip and you have personal as well, if, you, if they're near each other, you can write off the whole, all the mileage as business mileage, even though you're also doing some personal stuff as well. You can combine it. And the savvy people are doing that, in fact. You know, that's what's so fascinating is that the people that come from money know how this whole game works. And the people that grew up, I, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. I had to learn a lot of these things, probably like your parents did. My family, are, are Im my family I come from a family of immigrants. I'm the first one born in this country. Uh, my family is originally from Russia and then moved through uh, China and Brazil and then finally into the United States. So I had to learn a lot of these things the hard way. And I think uh, maybe even your first thing, it says when a person with experience meets a person with money, how does it go? Then the person with money... I didn't have experience or money, so I don't, I, I, you probably know how that ended up turning out. Yeah, when I, I think it says when a person of experience meets a person of money, the person of money gets some experience and the person of experience gets the money. Yeah, yeah, I think that's how it works. But if you don't have either, then uh, you, 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 get a, you get a little bloodied up out there in the business world. And I think a lot of what happens is you kind of give up and you take the easiest one-size-fits-all one fit all approach and you never revisit that strategy. So. If you've, if you've used just your same tax person that your parents used, or if you use quick, you know, uh, my mind's going blank here. TurboTax, Turbo tax. there Turbo you go. Tax. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. yeah. So uh, if that's what people do, they get familiar and they don't revisit it. I mean, I read, just read Daniel Kahneman's book. On, he won a Nobel laureate for economics on the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, because people choose what's the easiest thing to think about. And it's easier to not read this book and learn about the deductions, although it's a lot more expensive. And if you sit down and look at what you're paying for and how your life will shift, I, I like the first chapter overview. It says you will never get rich until you learn to get your taxes down to the legal minimum. And that was the first bullet point that you made in that book. Can you talk about actually, that a little bit? Actually, that was a quote from a statement by um, a Nobel Prize winning economist and who felt that tax, tax knowledge was the one worthy goal that everyone should undertake. You know, people don't realize that taxes are the biggest bite on, on, on what they make. It, it, it exceeds what they pay for food, clothing, lodging, and transportation combined. And they don't realize it for a number of reasons, a part of which is, you know, the money is taken out of their paycheck and they just learn to live with uh, what they have left. Uh, there's just lots of, of reasons for it. There's subtle taxes where they, they, they disallow certain deductions indirectly. You know, you, you got Social Security where somebody's paying half of it. Uh, but by getting it down, it really can put a lot of money in your pocket. You know, there was a study done, a long-term study, 
where they estimated that only of all the people who retired at age 66, only 4% can retire with the same standard of living they had before retirement. So what happens to the other 96% that got, they have to either continue working, which is one reason why people are working much longer, much older. I was just reading a guy, he's working as a security guard, 88. All right, so they have to, have to continue working, reduce their standard of living, or live on some form of charity. And you'd be surprised, even people making lots and lots of money on the same problem, because the more you make, the bigger the bite that it takes. So getting that down to the legal minimum can make put everybody in that top 4%, but they don't realize it. And that's the sad part. They really don't realize it. In fact, one shocking statistic, there are more, if you take a look at all of the financial and tax books, I'm not talking about the the, the do it, how to do it yourself tax books, but all the tax planning books and financial planning books sold in the world, all of them combined do not exceed the sale of the lowest selling Harry Potter book. Now, what does that tell you? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, what it tells me is that people want to escape mm -hmm. and people, you know, I have a theory with this, Sandy. Um, I believe that what comes up for people is that they worry that if they find out how much money they've lost, people do not want to find out that they're wrong. I just watched a TED talk recently about being wrong. And what does it feel like to be wrong? Right at the moment, it feels exactly like being right, right? It, but what does it feel like once you realize you're wrong? And it's that, it's almost like people don't want to know that they've been doing it wrong. So they will- You know what that's called? What is it called? That's, there's, there's a syndrome for that. It's called super messenger syndrome. I remember talking with a guy, I was of counsel to a financial planning firm. And this guy, he had a prior planner and he had all this Jiffy Lube stock. But when I actually took a look at what he had, he owned Jiffy Lube Limited Partnership, which is very different than Jiffy Lube stock. You can't sell it, it's not, it's not the same thing. And when I told him this, his response was, yeah, but these certificates are so beautiful. And he was so embarrassed, he was so embarrassed that what he did he never came back to that financial planner. You know, as I said, it's shoot the messenger syndrome. It's that shame. It's that feeling of shame and trying to externalize it and justify what you've already done. And there's, uh, I forget, there's another, there's another element when information is shown to you that shows that what you've been doing is wrong, you immediately look for more information to confirm what you were already believing. Because it takes, it, there's almost an initiation process that takes place between realizing you're wrong and then completely changing your belief system. You know, you're absolutely right. And there's, and there's one thing that we, we really emphasize here at TaxBot, and some, if you've been to our seminars, you might have heard this. Mm -hmm. When it comes to their accountant, people are used to what is known as the dog food experience. Now, what's the dog food experience? When you give a dog dog food, they eat it up. They, they go, rah, 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 it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. but, but you give that dog a T-bone steak, all of a sudden, now you give him a choice between the T-bone steak and the dog food, that dog will never go to that dog food again. They will <laughs> go to the T-bone steak. The problem is most people have what I call the dog food experience with their accountant. The accountant does not sit down with them. The accountant and say, okay, here's some tax planning for next year. Here's what you could do. Should you incorporate? Should you not? That doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why there is, that's why I've written the book that I wrote because the accountants are basically taking the numbers you give them, massage them and come out with a tax return. And they're so busy doing tax returns that the people, that most people are the self-employed people aren't getting the tax planning advice that they should be getting. As I said, they're used to the dog food experience. 
It's so fascinating you say that, Sandy. I read, I read this book. I read it on my Kindle. It's a lot smaller on here. That's uh, correct. And it also better. lights itself up, so I, don't, I read at night oftentimes. Um, okay. And this is advice that I'd never, I've never received from an accountant. Um, and even in bringing it up with some, some people that I know that are accountants, they were like, that's not true. And then they checked and found out it actually was true. And they had to continuously go up the line. I actually went to an H&R block about four days ago just to ask a question, just to see. I, I wanted to know who had been there the longest. And the person that had been there the longest had been there for 19 years. And I asked them, how long can you carry over a loss that came through your S corporation to you individually? How far, how far can you carry over that loss into the future? And she just had no idea whatsoever. It took a week to get a call back with the answer of 20 years was the answer that she gave. And that's the old rule, actually. That has changed. You now get an unlimited carryover under the new law. So right. not only did yeah. she not know, she, was, she knew the correct answer, but the correct answer was old. This is the same situation that I've noticed. Uh, with student loans, for example, the sad thing is, is that there is nobody to go to for advice, which in some ways gives us an advantage because people at least know that the person, at least they should know that the person shouldn't know. Uh, they're well, getting... the, reason, the reason for all this is very simple. People don't know what they don't know. Absolutely. So they, they think they have the information. They think they know what's going on. The sad fact is they don't. It's just the way it is. Yeah, in our situation, we're, we're working with the only source that people really have, that borrowers have. See, most borrowers, the average, the average student loan debt is in the $20,000 range. Our, our average client has $150,000 or more because they're medical doctors or they're doctors. They have doctorates or they have graduate you know, that, degrees. That, that's actually very serious because uh, you're only allowed under tax law to get a deduction for $2,500 of student loan interest. And then only if you make under a certain income, which you probably, they probably don't. Mm -hmm. So in effect... Having to pay interest on 150, 200,000 of debt or more when you can't get a deduction is a, a very expensive debt. Oh, yeah. At, at least with a physician, you're making a fairly decent income where you can help pay it back. But there are people, I just met someone who has $100,000 of student loan debt and she majored in women's studies. Now, what, what do you do with that? And how do you get a job paying you well enough to pay that off? Good luck. That's the challenge. And this is something, Sandy, we should talk about on another, on another podcast because our clients that have worked with us know what we work with, but the entire strategy shifts. And then we start talking about negative amortizing interest. We talk about loan forgiveness. We talk about the tax implication associated with that. And then we look at ways to mitigate how the interest accrues and capitalizes over the life of the loan. And then putting them in a situation to when, if and when, there's a tax implication that is associated with that, that they're prepared to deal with that. But most of these people, look at how complex this is, are going for their student loan advice and repayment strategy and, and how they should go about this and getting that information. I just looked earlier, uh, one of the major servicers, Nelnet, uh, is hiring for $12 an hour. They're getting their financial advice for $250,000 in many cases on their student loans from someone that's getting paid $12 an hour working in a call center with maybe a day or two's worth of training. So it's yeah. frightening. Very frightening. Very frightening. And that's why the default rate is high. And uh, well, that's why the student loan total debt amount, debt load is something above 1.3 trillion right now with 43 million borrowers. That goes back to what I said at the very beginning. They don't know what they don't know. They think they're getting advice. They think they're getting good service. They think they're getting the information they need. They're not because they don't know what they don't know. So let's dial into getting them to know some things about Absolutely. taxes. Got I'm excited for these questions I have for you. Let's uh, do it. 
I was the whole time I'm reading the book, I get so excited that I have to put the book down. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but I'm like, if only people knew this. And then, and then, then what goes through my mind is this shoot the messenger thing. I'm like scared to even say it because they're like, this is not possible. Um, and you see me getting excited and worked up right now. Uh, but many are, many of our clients are self-employed. Um, how would they determine whether it makes sense uh, to have an escort? They're a self-employed, let's say they're a self-employed chiropractor, acupuncturist, or naturopath. How would they, how would they know whether, hey, I should have an escort or not? Well, there's a lot of factors that go into play here. And I'm not going to, you know, I have a whole book, whole chapter. I think it's 130 pages on different types of entities. And we're not going to be able to do this on a podcast. But from a tax perspective, the new law actually made a bright line as to when you want to be an S-corp or a corporation versus a non-corporation. And from a tax perspective, uh, the rule is, uh, it, first of all, if you're a medical professional and you're making under 315000 of net taxable income, that's net of everything. I'm talking not only business deductions, but personal too, the standard deduction, anything personal. Or if you're single and you're making under 157500 you're able to ex basically exclude 20% of your net income under the new tax law. You get a deduction of 20% of that, of, that of that net income. And again, the magic numbers are under 315000 uh, married or under um, 157500 single. Now, if you start making more than that, particularly as a medical professional, then you may not get that 20% uh, deduction. All right. Now, other businesses might be able to get it. They're not medical. They're not legal. It depends on the business you're in. Uh, and, and those people should probably form an S-Corp because there's a... Um, a sophisticated limitation. Nothing, nothing's this. Congress can't do anything easy. They just can't. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they did is that in order to get that 20% deduction, there's a limit on the amount of wages you pay yourself. But if you're a sole proprietor, you don't have wages. Mm -hmm. uh, so therefore, you'll get no deduction if you make over $315,000. Mm -hmm. So as you, if you're, once you re start reaching that level, once you start reaching around three hundred fifteen, dollars you might want to consider being an S-Corp. And the reason you might want to do that is, number one, you might get a partial deduction for that 20% write-off, but more importantly, you can pay yourself part in dividend, part in salary. The salary is subject to Social Security. The dividend is not. So you'll save yourself 15.3% on the dividend itself. So that's another advantage of being an S corporation. And that can come into play even below $315,000. That might be handy if, even if you make over $100,000 a year. But that's something, as I said, this is not the, the, the place I want to get into it in depth. You want to meet with a good financial and tax professional and really go over it and decide, you know, the pros and cons of, of what you want to do. I think, yeah, totally, uh, Sandy, and I appreciate that response. I think that the purpose of this podcast is to help people understand maybe some elements of what they don't know and then how to speak more intelligently with their financial professional uh, about these certain questions that they may have. Um, That's correct. By the way, I, I do want to mention there's a myth in the medical profession that they didn't quite understand. Um, and, it's, and it's partly true, but unfortunately, it's not as much true as most doctors believe. Most doctors, and this is true, there's something called specified service businesses. If you're a specified service business and you make over a certain income, you don't get that 20% deduction. And being in the medical field is a specified service business. So most doctors think, oh, well, I can't get this 20% deduction, but that's not totally true. Because if you're making under that 315000 of net 
taxable income and you're self-employed mm-hmm. or you're making under 157,500 single, the other one was married, you do get that 20% exclusion from your income. You do get it, even though you're a specified service business. So please be aware of that. Beautiful. Uh, from a student loan perspective, Sandy, the dividend versus salary portion also reduces the, uh, the amount of discretionary income that is calculated when calculating income-driven repayment options on student loans, which significantly reduces what they're going to pay both monthly and over the life of the loan. So that, That's uh, true. I've, I've, I've heard that. The, but the key there, if you're going to be an S-corp and you're going to pay yourself a salary, and you're going to pay yourself a dividend, I do want to emphasize one thing. Your first reaction would be, well, why do I want to pay any salary? Why don't I pay all dividends? Exactly. That was my next question. How <laughs> much, what percentage? <laughs> there is no set answer yeah. to that, unfortunately. But the rule is you have to pay yourself a reasonable salary. Uh, general thinking based, that's based on what you would do if you have to hire someone to manage your business and do what you need to do. Uh, many accountants have estimated somewhere between uh, 40 and 60% of what you make in salary and the difference dividend, but there is no set answer to be, to be honest with you as to what's gonna be guaranteed. But you have to pay yourself a reasonable salary. If you do, then the difference can be a dividend and that'll help you, you're right, with the student loan calculation, it'll help you uh, avoid social security on that 15%, it'll hurt on that, that, that dividend portion, help you in a lot of ways. Uh, plus the dividend qualifies for long-term capital gain treatment, unlike salaries. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of benefits to that, but you must pay yourself a reasonable salary. If you don't, then the whole thing will be treated salary by the IRS. So you want to meet with someone, again, a good tax professional to really structure this as to what is reasonable, do some research, prepare a good case. You you want to think like a prosecuting attorney marshalling the evidence so that if something comes back at you, you're prepared, you have sufficient evidence for what you just did. So Sandy, for those of of our clients that are listening to, or maybe even potentially people that aren't our clients that are listening to this podcast and they're, they're hearing what you're saying, how would they determine whether that they have a good accountant? And if they felt that they didn't, how would they go about finding out who's a good accountant? If you were looking for an accountant with all that you know, how would you, how would you find one? How would you sniff one out? There's a couple ways. First of all, one of the things that I did in, in this particular version of my book, Lower Your Taxes Big Time, Appendix B is how to find a good accountant. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a whole chapter on this with questions to actually ask an accountant to interview them. Hmm. And for example, do you want, uh, I want an accountant, and this is just a few of the ideas. I want an accountant that prepares other professionals like myself. If I'm a doctor, I want somebody who has a lot of doctor clients. If I'm a network marketer, I want someone with network marketing clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, want, I want somebody who's been in business, been in practice for at least five years or more. You, you don't want a rookie working on you, do you? You want someone who, who has your temperament. They generally want an, you want an honest accountant, but you want an aggressive accountant. Um, I met someone who thought their accountant was wonderful because they gave them $5,000 more in charity than they ever paid for. Mm. You know, it's illegal. And IRS finds out about those people. They learn every single person that accountant prepares. So that is certainly one, one thing you should do. And might get my book, Lower Your Taxes, big time. And just that one chapter in Appendix P, B will, will pay for that. But <laughs> another way to do it is uh, we at TaxBot have been getting a lot of people asking, do we, how do, who knows what I know? Who's read my book? Who understands the information? So we are preparing a network of tax-certified professionals, what we call them TCPs, tax-certified professionals, who understand the material, will take a test, 
And you know, so they do have some familiarity with what I've done. So this way they can, they will do some, they should theoretically be able to do tax planning for you because they know what I do and they know the information in my book. So that's another way of finding a good accountant by calling TaxBot and getting someone who's on that tax certified professional list. When I hear that, it makes me want to take this, this course. <laughs> really? Uh, and then, I, I mean, I, and, I, and I also like, I, I also recommend that you use a professional. You know, taxes yeah. is not one of those things that you want your, your mechanic to do part-time or your insurance guy doing part-time. You want somebody who's either a CPA or an enrolled agent. It's a guy who passes it or a woman who passes a tough IRS exam, uh, an ex-IRS person, uh, an attorney, uh, basically even better if you can get a combination of those. Uh, that those are the types of things you want to look for. There's a lot more. I have like 28 questions in here, and I, sir, I really recommend you look at Appendix B in my book, Lower Your Taxes Big Time. Thank you, Sandy. Yeah, I think it's important that the person that's working with your taxes could look at your, you as a person and not just look at the pieces of paper on their computer screen. So many times I brought in all of my information and they're just looking through the papers. And I'm like, well, wait a second, like what, how, do we, how do we strategize? Like I don't understand what I should be charging under what. Which led me to you, so I guess it's all it's all a good thing. Well, that raises another very interesting point, and and that is, uh, and we cover this in TaxBot University. We have a whole university program on 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 uh, on video on on all kinds of information that's in my book. If you don't want to physically read the book page after page, you can go on the university. In fact, there's some things in the university probably that aren't even even in the book. Uh, but one of the things that we mention in our university is that most people um, go to their accountant at the wrong time. Their timing is horrendous. Well, let's face it. You get your stuff. Accountants, think about what's going on here because the system is really rigged against the average self-employed individual. Accountants, uh, people don't get their information probably until February or March, all right? Account, a good accountant probably has somewhere between three and 400 tax returns. They, even if they average seven a day, and they, 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 can't, they won't get to any tax returns until they get all the information. So they probably won't start doing tax returns to some point in February. Even if they did seven returns a day, it would, they would only be able to put in two hours on that tax return. Now, is two hours enough time to do an average self-employed person's tax return? Not really. And yet most people go in to see their accountant, try to get, have all these tax questions, try to get tax planning during their busiest time of the year, which is absolutely the wrong thing to do, which is why people are getting the dog food experience. What you need to do is tax planning is a year-round endeavor. I would stay away from the accountant when it comes to tax planning from January to April. That's when you don't do tax planning. But then you want to make an appointment afterwards to go over various tax planning tips, income shifting tips, things that I cover in my book, Lower Your Taxes Big Time and other things. Those are the things you really want to do. You don't want, to, you want, you don't want this done during tax season because they don't have the time to do it and they won't. But if but you go afterwards, they will have the time and then they'll do it. But again, you want to get someone who has the ability to do tax planning. Not everybody does. There are tax planners and there are tax preparers, and they're not always the same. That's an important distinction. Correct. I think I just stumped no. you. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm looking at one of my long questions. Holly said, make them shorter and then you'll elaborate on, you'll understand the <laughs> essence of the question and elaborate as opposed to this really long question. Uh, 
so I'll, I'll state something. Um, a lot of our clients are doctors and sometimes they're married and their spouse uh, may work or may not work, uh, but isn't also a doctor. And I remember there was an example in this book that was very powerful where you had spoken about how it made more sense for someone to start a home-based business for the, like not for the tax benefits. Obviously they need to have the goal to make a profit, but the tax benefit paid more than what they would earn from a part-time employment, which to most people, myself included, until I finished that, it was a huge aha moment for me. Can you touch on that? Well, you know, people have to understand, particularly under the new tax reform law, that we have two tax systems in this country. And when I say that, most people think, oh, sure, one for rich and one for poor. And that's not quite accurate. Under the new tax law, there's one to make you rich, and then there's one to, that steals your wealth, basically to make you poor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the one to make you poor is the one now designed for employees. Because if you are an employee, you are taxed on dollar one, number one. You don't get a lot of the, the deductions that business people get. And you, uh, you, and you don't get a lot of like that special 20% exclusion from income. I mean, there are a lot of things you don't get as an employee. Mm -hmm. But if you're self-employed, now you can, and I'm, I'm, and I'm including S-corpers as well as being self-employed, mm -hmm. you can write off part of your house, your spouse, the equivalent of your kid's education and weddings. I'm not exaggerating when I say that, by the way. You can set up a pension plan that makes any government plan look small by comparison. The benefits of being self-employed or being an S-corp are enormous and much, much better than being an employee. And yet, for some reason, people are not aware of this. They go to college with the, with the why do they go to college? With the hope of getting a job, a J-O-B. And, and, and all that does is, is, is essentially make them put up with a boss, which is spelled backwards, double S-O-B. <laughs> It's, it's absolutely well. It's nice. I've been self-employed too long. <laughs> you have, but the point is, you know, it's absolutely insane. And I see people working all kinds of extra hours for that sob, and all extra hours for the company. The company doesn't care if they have the slightest problem. They lay you off. There's no loyalty by the companies. You know, to me, I would put in as little as possible so I don't get fired. But I would, you know, try to set up a side business. And who knows? Maybe you can make enough money so you don't have to work for that job anymore. Not to mention the fact you get all these great tax benefits from the side business. I mean, I don't understand why people don't get it. It's absolutely mind-boggling. That's why my first chapter in my book is called Why You'd Be Brain Dead Not to Have a Home-Based Business. There's a reason. I love that. I love how direct you are with all of these things. You don't, you don't, uh, you don't go, the only word I know is pussyfoot around it. I don't, I don't beat around the bush. You don't, that's, that's what I was Yeah, you don't beat around the bush. That's a more. I'm, I'm very direct. I speak my mind and I tell them what I, the way I see it. Beautiful. Uh, what are the biggest changes in Trump's tax bill uh, and how is it affecting people? I know for a while I was told that my meals, my meals and entertainment was not a write-off any longer, which I have a ton of meals because uh, we cater a lot. Um, so what are the big changes for the, well, that's, a, that's actually partially a myth. I, I want you to be aware of that. There are, well, there are so many changes. I mean, how long we got here? I mean, we're not going to have the time. <laughs> Maybe the top to two, the top two changes. Uh, I mean, I can tell you that I spent, you know, a large part of tax spot university and, and I have an entire chapter in the back of this new book, by the way, lower your taxes big time 
totally on the changes in the tax law. This was one of the biggest seismic changes in tax law that we've had probably in 30 years. Okay. Well, a couple of the things that I want to make put into play here. The new tax law was designed primarily to help the big business clients. Not, it, the small business came in incidentally, but the big business was the main goal. They dropped the corporate tax rates from 35% to 21%, and that was for the regular corporation. That's a big, big deal. Uh, and partly the, part of the reason they did that was to try to prevent corporations from leaving this country because corporations can simply reincorporate somewhere else and say goodbye to the United States. Hmm. And, and to be honest with you, I don't think they're going to achieve that. They had to make it even lower than the 21%. They actually hmm. wimped out. They should have done like 12 to 15%, but they, they didn't do it low enough. But that's beside the point. A, a lot of self-employed folks felt that was completely unfair. You're only helping big business and nobody else. So they came out with this 20% deduction for certain businesses who make under a certain income, where essentially you are, are effectively only taxed on 80% of your income. That's, a, that's essentially what it does. Hmm. And that really helps small business in a sense, somewhat equivalent to what they would have gotten if they were incorporated. Second big change is in the personal side. Employees, as I said, really got the shaft. Hmm. There are some limitations now on state and local taxes. You used to be able to write off all your state and local taxes as an itemized deduction. Now, all that state the taxes, sales tax, personal property tax, um, property taxes themselves, state income tax is limited to $10,000. In addition to that, and this, there's a much more, much more significant thing, all miscellaneous itemized deductions, things like safe deposit box fees. Sometimes people are employees. They don't get reimbursed. Employee business expenses. All those miscellaneous itemized deductions are gone. You can no longer write those off. And the final thing, which is even more uh, sneaky in a sense, they've doubled the standard deduction. Now, when you think about that, you go, oh, that's good. The problem with that is that in order to itemize, you have to exceed your standard deduction. So if you double the standard deduction, that essentially reduces the chance of everybody itemizing. So much fewer people are able to itemize as a result of doubling that deduction. So if you combine that with the elimination of the state and local taxes, with the elimination of, uh, uh, or reduction in state and local taxes, with the reduction of, of uh, miscellaneous itemized deductions, a lot of employees really got hurt, particularly in the high tax states and places like that. And by the way, it wasn't just that. They also made another subtle change. You can only deduct now up to $750,000 of mortgage interest. You used to be able to write off up to 1.1 million. That they reduced the amount of mortgage interest you can write off. So if you want to buy these big homes, be aware, you can only write off up to $750,000 of mortgage interest. But the good news is that if you're in business, you can generally get around these limitations. For example, you can only deduct $750,000 of mortgage interest, but if you have a home office, you can deduct a portion of that mortgage interest as home office expenses in addition to the $750,000. Hmm. You can deduct part of your, of your state and local taxes in addition to the business portion of it, in addition to the $10,000. So as I said, being in business really is a major benefit now over someone who is solely an employee. And that's really the bottom line here. Hence why that first chapter, why you'd be brain dead to not a start to not That's start correct. business and it be one of the last tax major tax loopholes, if you want to call it. Uh, you know, or what did you say? Last greatest tax 
shelter, not shelter. Was that it? The word? Seismic, change, seismic changes that hit this country. And by the way, I do want to mention one more thing. There's, a, there's this real myth that you cannot deduct meals and entertainment. You know, f- throughout the entire Internal Revenue Code, from, from, from the very beginning of the Internal Revenue Code, I think it's back in 1913, you were able to write off uh, meals and entertainment. In fact, they were, we, we accountants used to think of it as one word, meals and entertainment. It's like yeah. we never had, they weren't separate words. Mm-hmm. They changed the rules a, a number of years ago where you can write off 50% of your meals and 50% of your entertainment. Well, the new tax law actually distinguishes between the two. It makes a distinction. Now, you can no longer deduct entertainment. Now, what's entertainment? Things like movies, plays, golf, theater, all that type of fun stuff is gone. I don't know what the NFL is going to do about their season, their, their box seats anymore, mm-hmm. but they're not going to be able to write those off either. But meals for clients are still deductible. And you can write off 50% of meals with any prospect or any client. Now, what's interesting is that in some cases, you can write off 100%, not just 50, but 100, particularly if they involve t- entertaining employees, like an employee meeting or, or employee sales seminars or, or things like that, uh, open houses. There's, if you're a, there, there are certain situations where you can write off 100% of your meals, but even if it's just a prospects, you can write off 50% of your meal. And I was just telling that to my, my dentist. He was a periodontist, and he sat down with lunch to talk to me about some periodontal needs and the cost of periodontal. That lunch is 50% deductible. Mm. And, that, and that is something that we weren't sure of when the first when the law was first passed. I will tell you, there was some confusion about that. The law was not written very clearly on this. You know, when you try to pass a law at two o'clock in the morning and get it out without any kind of testimony, <laughs> you know, you're, you're gonna have some um, issues. <laughs> and, and you laugh, but that's exactly what happened. Okay? Yeah, I know. I remember that. <laughs> and I don't remember many awesome things happening where there's like clear concise thinking happening at two in the morning generally there were some clear concise thinking probably to the impl- to try to implement all this stuff somebody smart looked at it yeah but they really try to, to ram it down the throats of everybody very quickly so nobody would give any comment uh, so there are issues there are things that are mis- mislabeled or mis um miswritten but as a practical matter, I think they, they, they clarify, IRS clarified this, and they, they now specifically said that meals with clients are 50% deductible. Beautiful. Thank you for answering that question that was so hard to get answered elsewhere. That was a very difficult question for me. I think that's what actually caused me to reach out again. Uh, there's a really amazing thing. I mean, our physicians, our clients are, are, are busy. They're self-employed, which in today's day and age means that if you're a self-employed physician, especially... Uh, like a chiropractor, acupuncture, naturopath, you're going to also be uh, not only a physician, you're going to be a bookkeeper, you're going to be the janitor in many cases, you're going to be your own marketer, or you're going to be trying to train a marketer. I mean, you're doing all of these things. And sometimes you may not remember to get a receipt because now a lot of times they don't give you a paper receipt or uh, and, and you went out to eat, or maybe you hear this and you're in this situation where you're like, crap, I haven't been keeping receipts. I don't know if I should start now. I mean, I haven't been, I, it, people tend to do what they keep doing. And there was something in your book called the $75 rule that I'd never heard of ever before. Do you want to touch on that? Okay. Yeah, I hate, well, first of all, people, uh, just, just so you know, in, it's a principle in physics called the principle of momentum. And that is uh, a body in motion stays in motion and a body at rest stays at rest. And that's true for many, many things in life. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why people tend to do what they've always have done, whether it's right or wrong, that's just what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's why people don't change either, by the way, for the same reason. Now, let's talk about receipts. I'm going to talk about the rule. I, I hate doing this because 
it, it, it sort of gives them the implication that they don't have to keep receipts, but that's not, which is not the case. According to the IRS, they, they tried to make it a little bit simpler for everyone. You don't need receipts if the expense is under, if it's entertainment or travel, and the expense is under $75 per expense. That's not per day, that's per expense. So let's say you go out with, a, uh, with, with me and you get some expensive pretzels, and you spend $25 on pretzels, hopefully those are really good pretzels. Uh, do you need a receipt? The answer is no, because it's under $75. Now, let's say that um, you give me a, let's say that um, I give you a really good marketing idea or a tax saving idea and you go, you know, Sandy, you're going to make me a lot of money. I'll take you out to dinner. And uh, you don't want to do that because I'll figure this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and I'll then go for a nice steak and I'll get a nice dessert and a martini and, a, and, I'll, and I'll dress a <laughs> wine and I'm, I'll really, you know, soak you. Let me tell you. Uh, so let's say you spend $85, <laughs> I would. So let's say you spend $85 on the meal. Would you have to have a receipt then? And the answer is yes. So you don't need a receipt for travel or entertainment if it's under $75. Now, with that said, however, I recommend you keep all your receipts. And I recommend that because number one, IRS agents like seeing receipts. They just like seeing it. Number two, you look more prepared. And when you're more prepared, the audit goes quicker. They tend to move on to other people who they know will not be prepared, who are an easier target. Uh, it just plus people forget the fact it's only with dealing with travel and entertainment. So I do recommend you keep all receipts. But if you happen to lose one or you didn't have one, you don't need it if it's under $75. And that happened to me once. I was at a restaurant where the printer broke. So they couldn't give me my copy of my credit card receipt. No big problem. I simply wrote it down in TaxBot and, and it's not a problem. Now, one interesting thing I want to emphasize here about receipts. Receipts aren't hard to keep, especially now. IRS accepts digital documentation. You know, with all these hurricanes, like Hurricane Sandy, it was nice of them to name a hurricane after me. I thought that, <laughs> I thought that was very nice. But uh, with hurricanes, they found with, with other types of things, fires, they, people were losing receipts, and yet you're still responsible, by the way, even though you lost it to a hurricane or a fire or a flood. So now IRS accepts digitized documentation. So, for example, with TaxBot, we have an integration with the, with the camera that they use on the, on the smartphones. You could take a picture of the receipt, as long as it's a clear picture, make sure it's, it's in focus, you, know, you might be able to see it. You save it on your phone all the way on the web, and now you can throw away the receipt because it's all digitized, and IRS will accept those digitized receipts. It's very easy to keep, and it's, it's really nice. You don't have to worry about ever losing it because you can save it on the web, and it's nice and bulletproof even against the worst calamity so i highly recommend that for everybody that's beautiful so keep your receipts but if for some reason you don't have one for meals entertainment or travel and it's less than 75 dollars, then it goes under that 75 dollar rule and you could still take the deduction that is correct beautiful um hmm 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 You've answered some of the questions, like pieces of other questions that I had prepared because we didn't know quite where this is going to go. These conversations, especially with taxes, are, are way more linear than most conversations I have. I, I just picture like while we're talking, there's all these rubrics. There's this, there's this individual that then has this organization, and then there's people that work for this organization. In some cases, they work for the organization, and then there's different types of taxes and then they have their investments and then those are accruing taxes and then they have over here their student loan and their student loans accruing interest and you know it's all a it's an interesting game and it's a lot more fun when you're winning than when you're losing and sadly a lot of people uh, are when they first start learning the rules of the game 
uh, are obviously losing. It's like uh, playing a game for the first time against a professional and the game is definitely not, it's intrinsically rigged to those who understand the game because well, they understand no, it. No question. I remember I said that the system is rigged. It's rigged against the account. It's rigged against the person. It's sort of like the game tic-tac-toe. I don't know if you remember, we use this analogy in TaxBot. When you first learn tic-tac-toe, I, I'd be willing to bet that the person who taught you beats you all the time. But once oh, yeah. you learn how tic-tac-toe works, it's a tie. Yeah. Same thing you do in tax law. If you know what you're doing, if you have the knowledge, there's, the, the amount of money you can save is enormous. But you've got you to gotta have that knowledge in order to be on an even par with the IRS. Most people just have no idea even that there are rules to the game. They actually think that they know the rules of the game. I mean, I jokingly say with student loans, you know, why is it that you need a team of people? And why have I spent so many years learning this, working with attorneys under, to learn student loan law, my business partner being an attorney? Why is it that it takes all of this to figure out how to pay back a debt? There's so much complexity and you don't necessarily need to do it. But if you want to save hundreds of thousands of dollars, then it may, then if you have $100,000 or more student loans, it is absolutely crazy to not get a second opinion other than a $10 or $12 an hour person that has had less training than probably they have on how to, on how to manage this. And, and the challenge is, is that people are going to give you the best advice they know. So they will, with absolute confidence and certainty, say, oh, yes, this is the right answer. But that one answer being slightly wrong, bringing back to that H&R block person with the I don't know the answer, which was at least thankful that she said that but then that it's 20 years and then that, it's, that the change is actually indefinite. Those little subtleties, it's like, I remember going to my first Tony Robbins seminar and he talks about there's a golf ball and you're hitting the golf ball. And depending on where you have the golf ball, the golf club aligned, it could be two millimeters one direction. And that ball, once you fast forward five, 10, you know, in this case, five, 10, 15, 20 years, you're gonna be in a very different place provided you have the club hitting the ball in the right place. And I think people never start with this strategy. They do. They're in a reactionary mindset. They're look, they, don't, they don't find applications to store their receipts. They don't come up with a strategy for how to, be corp, how, how to have their corporations form. They don't learn a strategy on their student loans. Um, and they, I think that they just hope that they're going to work really hard and do a really good job at whatever it is they're doing. And because they do a good job at practicing whatever that their practice is, they're going to be successful. And there's plenty of people like Mike Tyson that show that no matter how good you are at whatever it is that you do, if you don't understand the financial element of it, your, finan your finances are not going to be a direct reflection of your talent elsewhere. Those things do not carry over. And if there's anything that doctors are, doctors are very intelligent and they're very smart, but they often think that that same uh, medical acumen carries over to their financial acumen. And uh, it, it seems to not be the case. <laughs> Well, you know, right, that's, a, that's an issue. You know, you find very successful people tend to think they're, they know everything everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a real problem. But I will tell you that, you know, and you can ask almost any doctor, I think they'll agree with you on this. The best way to treat a disease is not to get it to begin with. Is that that okay? whole uh, ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure? It's, worth, it's probably worth a ton of cure. Probably. Okay. Same thing is true with, with most financial matters. The best way to handle it is not to be reactionary, but to be proactive and avoid the problem to begin with. This is why I always recommend, you know, like probate, you know, you, want, you don't want to have probate. You want to avoid it and figure out, meet with somebody about doing that. 
you can tax planning. You don't want to spend lots of money on taxes all the, every year, but try to meet with somebody to minimize those taxes to begin with, including setting up the right entity. You don't want to be sued and have somebody go after you for millions. You want to prepare in advance to, so you don't have that situation. You know, they, it, it, it's, when they said an ounce of uh, prevention is a pound of cure, no, that's wrong. An ounce of prevention is worth a ton of cure. It's, you brought up the, uh, the entities, and I, I remember in your book you talked about why, why uh, scam artists and uh, intelligent or, uh, yeah, intelli- like actors also and intelligent business owners incorporate in Nevada. And I had, you know, seen these late night infomercials with like, you know, you want, you're going to save taxes by incorporating in Nevada. And then, of course, I go to a, an accountant and I say, hey, I heard you pay less taxes if you incorporate in Nevada. And they say, well, it doesn't matter. If you incorporate in Nevada, because then you, wherever you're doing business, for example, I'm in Utah right now, you would have to register as a foreign entity, pay additional fees and pay taxes in Utah. So why does somebody, what is the, is there any benefit in short to benefit, uh, to, to uh, incorporating in Nevada? Well, you're not going to save taxes. That, that's the first thing. <laughs> you're right. The, the accountants are correct on this in that you'd have to file as a non-resident company doing business in your state and you end up paying probably more than you would otherwise, or at least equal. But there are some benefits to incorporating in Nevada. And the same thing is true, by the way, in Nevada, in uh, Montana. And there's some other places. Alaska has some new laws. So there are some other states that are some really beneficial. First thing is that many of these states have much tougher provisions to pierce the corporate veil. And liability is an issue. Piercing the corporate veil is a big deal. Now, malpractice is a different story because malpractice, many times they allow piercing the veil when it comes to that. But other types of liability, other types of issues, somebody trips in your, in your office or trips on your property or other types of issues, uh, having a, having a, being incorporated in a state that limits liability as much as like Nevada and others can be very beneficial. So that's one reason is li- a more greater degree of protection in terms of limiting liability. The second reason is uh, more privacy. It's much harder to find out who the owners are of the S-Corp if you incorporate in Nevada than if you incorporate, say, in Utah or in California. Mm -hmm. There's a much greater degree of privacy protection. There are also some other benefits in terms of corporate formalities and other things that are a little bit easier in some of these other states. So there's basically three reasons, but not necessarily to save taxes. (laughs) That's a myth. <laughs> See, that's the interesting thing because the minute this is how our brain also works. The minute we find out something's incorrect, like I can't, I don't save taxes by incorporating in Nevada. All of a sudden, I feel like there was no truth to incorporating in Nevada, but there was some truth. It just wasn't that. That wasn't the reason. That's um, correct. I want to end this call, and I, I, there's so many things I'd love to cover with you, and depending on how how our clients respond to this and whether they have more questions, which I'm sure they will. Uh, and I love your personality, Sandy, you're fun. And you know, Thank I you. can tell you've been to a lot of Tony Robbins events, but how excited you get about what you do and that this is your passion. Uh, it's also my, pa- this is one of my passions. I love the game of, of this whole thing uh, and figuring out ways to beat it and then showing people how their whole life can change by just pieces of information structuring their life in a specific way and the filing of paperwork. Do you know why I'm this way? I want to mention something here. I hope everybody listens to this. If you can save $7,000 a year in taxes, I'm not talking a lot of money, 7,000, and you put it away in an average performing mutual fund, no stock trading, 
no sophisticated real estate, just put it away in an average performing mutual fund. And you do this throughout your entire medical career, throughout your whole life, you will, let's assume that's about 35, 40 years, you will have an extra, above and beyond, extra $3 million for retirement. That's a hell of a savings. And that's just 7,000 a year. I like saving that kind of money because this can put people, this can really change their life. It's huge. And honestly, with not having to worry about paying a considerable amount of interest on their student loans, they could carve that 7,000 out of the money that they're already putting towards their education. One of the things we've been saying, because I've tried to make it simpler what we do, because people often ask me what we do. And I say, you know, we're, we're uh, student loan repayment and forgiveness strategists, mostly for self-employed borrowers with over $50,000 of debt. And I'm like, well, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue now, does it? So I've been saying that I've tried to simplify it. So it's kind of like you said, save, lower your taxes big time. Mine is pay less for the same education because you've already got the education. So now it's just a strategy of how do you pay less? And now that you're paying less, what do you do with the money you save? Well, one is hire a professional with your taxes as well. Because if we're able to do this with your student loans, there's definitely those same people when it comes to your taxes. And then invest the money that you would normally put, be throwing away. Because in this, in this case, in most of our clients' cases, they were throwing the money away. And it's tough to realize that. It's that shoot the messenger situation. You mean I've been paying $2,000 a month and I didn't have to. And over the life of the loan, if I kept doing that, I would have paid 380,000. And over the life of the loan this way, I'm going to spend 100,000. There's a considerable difference. Absolutely. Or, or use that money they save in taxes to help power down their debt and reduce the amount of years. I mean, student loan debt, as you know, is a very expensive debt. I mean, you're talking, I don't know what it was. I, when I looked last time, it was like 8% or something like that. That was a pretty high rate of, of interest. And if you don't get a deduction for that, that's 8% after tax. That's a, that's a high rate of interest. So if you yeah. can use that tax savings to help power down that debt, that's just another tool in your, in your feather, so to speak, or in your hat to help you know, reduce that debt quicker. And sometimes that makes sense. Sometimes the paying down of the debt, for, for most of our clients, paying down the debt probably only makes sense for less than 10% of the clients. Now, over the life of the loan, that can shift. All of a sudden, their income becomes so high that the income-driven options and the subsidies that the government allows to reduce the interest rate accrual like starts to, we do, a, we do a planning call every year. So we see what's shifting. And all of a sudden, if that income-driven repayment plan starts to raise, then it comes down to how do we create, how do we drop that interest rate and pump all of that money in? But if you're pumping money just haphazardly all over the place with no plan whatsoever, then you're going to run into a problem because there's no Absolutely. strategy element, you know? And then most people's only strategy is work harder. Oh, what do I do? Work harder. And I picture like a lot of people like borrowers, they're in, it's, I picture them like in a, are you a boxing fan, Sandy? Um, depends on who's boxing. <laughs> they're, not them like they're like in round, they're like they have one strategy. It's the, you know, they have the puncher's chance like the rope or something like that. You yeah. Know, they have the puncher's chance and like, maybe they're not a good boxer, but they hit really hard. So they're, you know, I don't know what to do. I don't have the strategy element. I don't have the finesse. So I'm just going to work harder, work harder, work harder. You know, I'm going to get more work. And I, I see this, you know, this strategy. And I don't think it's effective. I know it's not effective for finance. Finance is a subtle art. And it is. You know, it's maybe, maybe even not an art. It's a subtle science. 
uh, I wanted to end this call with one of the, I remember you put in the book, you said that there is one thing that would cost the IRS $2 trillion if, if people knew about it. And it was uh, gift and shift the tax technique, I believe it was called. <laughs> you want to make yeah. a... Yes, the, the, actually, there's there's other things I would now recommend under under the uh, new tax law as well. But the gift the gift to push tax technique is a really cool strategy. There is a loophole in the tax law that was created, uh, probably uh, I don't know if it came in before Obama or during Obama's time, but it was certainly codified and made even better with with Trump in some ways. And what it is is this. If you sell, um, let me give you an example. If you sell um, real estate or stocks and you're making a lot of money, let's say you have a large amount of capital gain, uh, you, your capital gain rate could be as high as 23.9%. However, people who have a net income of under roughly uh, 36,500 single or 75, uh, roughly 73 or 74,000 married have a capital gains rate of zero. Mm. Okay. Mm. So my suggestion was, if you, let's assume you have some kids who are uh, in graduate school or are going to medical school, okay? You might want to give them some of the stock or bonds, let them sell it and let them get taxed on the capital gains rate at the zero rate instead of you being taxed at 23.9% rate. All right. Now, there are some pros. There are some uh, issues with that. There's something uh, called a kitty tax, uh, which means if children are under age uh, 26 or 20, no, well, under 26, generally uh, their tax, they, they can earn up to 2,500 income tax free, 2,100, 2,100 income tax free. And anything beyond that is taxed at the trust rates, uh, much higher trust rates. Mm. Uh, but once they hit 26 or, or if they get married, it, 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 it drops to 18. Uh, and I think, I think it's, is it 26 or 24? All of a sudden I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it's 26. And, and, uh, once they hit that age, then they can earn as much as they want and get, get that 0% tax bracket if they're making under 75,000 a year, which includes capital gains. So that's, that's something they really want to think about. If they're married, then that rate, that age drops to age 18. So once that, so I guess the government wants you to get married in a sense. If they're unmarried and full-time students, then they got to worry about it until uh, a certain age. And now that I think about it, I think it's age 24. It may not be 26, maybe 24. So it's so hard to hold all of this in our heads. I've, I've yeah, got it is. other issues. But, what I'm, but I'm saying that if you have kids that go to medical school or law school, and they're probably 24 at that point, uh, they can earn, they, you can give them the stock, you can give them some, some shares of real estate, some parts or ownership of real estate. They sell itself. They get taxed on their share of the gain. Their share is much lower than what you pay, and you save a tremendous amount of taxes. And that's called the gift to push tax technique. Now, there's one more technique I want to emphasize that's in my book, and there's, there's lots and lots of, of things we cover in Tax Bot University, but I, I just want to, I'll leave you with one good one. And that is if you're a physician, you've got a lot of equipment. You might have x ray equipment, you have waiting room furniture, you've got uh, examination tables, you've got all kinds of stuff. How would you like to write off all that equipment twice? Not once twice. Would you like that? You think doctors would like that? Yeah, I, I remember this one. Yeah, I mean, I, I had to read it. I read this actually twice. Uh, I, I read it twice because you got to write it off twice. So you wrote right. write it twice, read it twice. Yeah, I mean, it was Perfect. that shocking. So I, they all have equipment, Sandy. What do they do? So here's the deal. 
The equipment you get to write off. You can, you can, you can write off, you depreciate it. Now, once it's depreciated, you don't get anything else. It's all done. So what you do is you give title to the equipment, just a little quick claim deed, nothing special, to your children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews and lease it back from them. Here's the point. You have already depreciated the equipment. You're now deducting these monthly lease payments. You're deducting the equipment twice. And what will your what would the what would your relatives do with the equipment? They'll use it to help pay for their education, to help pay for their medical school, to help pay for their room and board and things like this. So this is a way of getting a double deduction. You're getting a deduction. They get taxed on the money at their rate, which is much lower. Your deduction, you're you're getting a deduction for both federal, state, and social security. They're only taxed on the rent for, for income tax. They do not have to pay social security on rent. So you're saving 15.3% on the rent. I mean, it's just huge benefits here. So what I hear you saying, Sandy, is it essentially like you're getting to play real world monopoly or real world rich dad, poor dad cash flow. Uh, You're getting to play the real game with your family. And it like helps create financial literacy within the family itself, creates the bond because obviously it's going to help your relationship because your kids probably still want to keep having you pay your lease to uh, to pay for their school. They could see how it's all working. I see a lot of the issues with finance is that parents are not willing to talk about finances with their kids. Uh, I read a book. I read it, I think maybe three times actually now. I think I listened to it once and read it twice. And it's a book called Money and the Soul's Desire written by a gentleman named Stephen Jenkinson. And he talks about this strange relationship philosophically that we have around money and not wanting to talk about money. And uh, that a therapist they're, they say the number one thing a therapist should never do with their client. What do you think a therapist should, the number one thing, it's actually in the guidebooks of becoming a psychologist or, or a psychiatrist. You would think it's maybe no, don't sleep with, the, with your patient. That's what uh, I would have guessed. Your patient. It's <laughs> the, the number one thing, the, the worst thing you could possibly do is loan money to your patient. So there's this very unusual, and I think it comes all stems around this feeling of shame they don't want to demonstrate to their, and he talks about this in this book as well. Um, it's very obtuse book, like just like, ugh, it's like pounding on you. But uh, he talks, I think that it has to do with the shame. They don't want to, and if you look at the advertisements, he mentions this in the book too. The advertisements all go and say, you know, you know, you know, dad doesn't, you know, you don't need to know about all of these things for your kids, you know dad doesn't know this, dad doesn't know this, call this professional and this professional will just do it all for you. And it, and it comes back to this feeling and then the father or the mother in, in any case, whoever the head of the household is or both of them just don't want to demonstrate their lack of financial acumen. So they just pass it along to the professional, not learning anything in the process. This is why we called the company student loan tutor as opposed to, well, aside from the fact it's also shorter than, you know, do all of your student loans for you, lower your, lower your total payment, lower your interest. Accru- like we call this student loan tutor because the idea is to educate people. Because if you understand how this stuff works, and if you understand that there is a game that's being played and that you can understand the rules, uh, and in an understanding of the rules, your whole life changes. Uh, I've gone on this t- really long tirade because I think there's a philosophical element here where you're inviting people with the educational component of not, you know, taxes is, a, is another entry point for people to build a deeper relationship with financial literacy with their family. What are, what are your thoughts on that, I guess? Any, you this? <laughs> well, ab- absolutely I do. I mean, I, I've, I've always believed very strongly in communicating with them 
in terms of financial literacy, what I'm doing. Uh, uh, my son, Matthew, became a financial planner. He's a CPA and a, an attorney. He became a financial planner because of, because of all the literacy that we've given him. I don't think you can ever know enough information, honestly. I mean, to, to keep people away from no, knowledge always seemed like a stupid idea to me. And the more knowledge you can educate your kids, but see, the, again, the problem is you don't know what you don't know. You're having people who don't know financial literacy trying to teach their kids. Good luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a very small percentage of the population. Remember what I said: four percent of the population is able to retire with the same standard of living at age sixty-six they had before age sixty-six. There's a reason for this. Fifty percent. I, w- I was doing some research in my other book, um, "Achieve Financial Freedom Big Time," which is my financial planning book. Fifty mm-hmm. percent of the population. Um, depending on who you read, depends on the studies, uh, supposedly live from hand to mouth. They, they can't, they, they, if they, they lose one paycheck, they're already behind. 50%? I mean, it is absolutely mind-boggling what is going on out there. The 40% of the people who get 401ks matching don't take, don't take advantage of it. They don't, they have, it's free money. They don't I take know. advantage of it. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's very sad. You'll get me started here. I can really go on. Yeah, yeah. I think this is important. I think that people often feel alone in this. They feel that they're the only person living paycheck to paycheck, or they feel that they're the only ones that don't understand how taxes work, or they're the only ones that that don't have their student loans under control. Uh, I mean, education's gone up something like, I think, four times in the past, 400% increase in the last 10 years, at least uh, doctoral programs. Uh, Interest rates obviously have also increased. Uh, It's almost impossible to discharge a student loan in bankruptcy. There's all sorts of weird glitches in the student loan world. If you do a spousal consolidated loan and then you get divorced, both both of the the spouses are responsible for that debt. yeah, it's a it's a big mess, and there's a lot of confusion as well. By the way, you know where the where the biggest bomb is going to be? You heard me say it. The biggest bomb is when parents guarantee their student loans for their children under the auspices that they will pay them off. Sorry about that. <laughs> I love Mario Brothers. I actually, uh, I used to do a sales talk. I, I ran sales and marketing companies for many many years. Um, was very successful financially in making money and uh, not successful in keeping it. Uh, I never slowed down long enough to learn how to keep the money, which this was this whole process. This is this endeavor I've been on the past five years. Uh, But that's when I I remember I brought almost 40 of my employees to a Tony Robbins convention, all the way from Utah and California and Washington, all the way to Florida to one of the UPW things. Okay. I remember hearing the voicemail from Tony Robbins that he forwarded to me um, about like, whoa, what the heck? There's all these people coming all the way across the country. But I remember I just, I used to talk about the Mario Brothers and there's a couple ways to play the Mario game. And one of the ways to play the Mario game that you would for sure, that game doesn't work the way life does. But the way that the Mario Brother game works is you just move from fast as you can from the beginning of the, of the level to the end. If you don't try to kill any of the bad guys or get any of the power-ups, you'll get to the end and you'll beat the game very easily. It's when you stop and explore that all the risk happens. So it's funny that you have that. But for life... You want to stop and explore and learn the whole Absolutely. platform of the game before just really plow through it. And I've always said, I said this to my kids, life is like a giant tic-tac-toe game. If you know the rules, you at least come out even. And that's really what's going on here. It's why I said, when a person of experience meets a person of money, the person of money gets the experience and the person of experience gets the money. <laughs> and that's the way it is. You want to be that. that. 
Pearson of Experience. I think that'll be the title of this podcast. Uh, in the game of tic-tac-toe, if you understand the rules, at least you'll come out even. So, uh, Sandy, thank you very much. you have anything you wanted to touch on finally? Uh, any, uh, anything about your tax bot? Uh, software or university? What? How can people yeah. engage with you? Can they find you online on Facebook? First of all, TaxBot is probably the best expense and receipt management tracking system for a small business going. I mean, you're not going to find anything better than that. You just look at the rules. I mean, we have we have Fortune 500 companies. We have we got a four and a half star rating. I mean, we 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 work on multiple accounts with multiple businesses, all in the same on one account. You can do this with multiple businesses. It's a great car tracking program. And TaxBot University is um, really this information, but a lot more. And with, with all kinds of tips and things like this, which is what I specialize in. Together, uh, you're talking about saving, uh, our average user saves 10,000 plus, $10,800 in, in savings uh, every year at just, just in using TaxBot. And then in university puts well over $20,000 in deductions. And so together, we have a, a very special deal that's, that's available. Uh, I don't know if you have this URL uh, in front of you. Uh, we do have that. But it, it, I can promise everyone who's listening to this that definitely take advantage of TaxBot and TaxBot University. It's going to make your entire life a lot less taxing. Sandy, thank you so much for, the, for your time. I have a feeling we're going to be doing another one of these. There's so much information that we could cover. Oh, I can do any one of these subjects. Just one chapter I could probably do. One or two chapters in, the, in this podcast. It. Anyway, it's great meeting you. I'm glad we got to talk in the past, but now I'm really glad I got a chance to meet you. Yeah, pleasure. I look forward to meeting you in Kauai or Hawaii when you get down Sounds there. Sounds good. All All right. Away from the volcano. Take care. Take care, Sandy. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening, and please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you. <laughs>